do not wait. Get involved now. Time in the market is more important than timing the market. Brandon Neff left the U.S. for the first time in 2008, destined to teach English in Thailand. He had less than $3,500 to his name. He came home 22 months later addicted to travel. Knowing he wanted a nomadic lifestyle, he knew he needed to make and save money while he traveled. He tried a little bit of everything, but when he discovered reward points and miles, it all came together. 64 countries later, there's no turning back for Brendan. Welcome to The Thought Card, a podcast about travel and money, where planning, saving, and creativity leads to affording travel, building wealth, and paying off debt. We are the Financially Savvy Travelers. So let's make the case for why credit cards can fuel our travels. Before I get started, I want to be very, very clear with everybody that I'm aware this isn't for everybody. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there that either think credit cards are a very, very bad thing or they don't have the self-control or one of a hundred different issues. And I get that. So be aware that I'm not telling everybody you have to do this. This is just one way that has worked for me. That said, I was one of those people before, like I had, I've always been aware of my credit. So I've always had decent credit, but when I left college, I had tons of debt. I did not do things right. I blew through and a surprise inheritance I got when I was 18. Um, I was terrible with money and I'm a hundred percent aware that you can turn it around. That said, it has absolutely changed my life. Um, like you said, my wife and I left to, um, in 2008. We left to go to Thailand to teach English. We had been out of college for about two years. The economy tanked, and we said, what are we going to do? At $3,500 in our account, we said, Thailand looks good. People are teaching English. Our friends are talking about it. Let's do it. Jumped on the road. I met a traveler there. He started talking to me about credit card points and miles, and I dug into it, and it's absolutely just changed the way I look at everything. Um, the best thing about it is really if it's done right, it's free. These points are free. I know a lot of people are like, oh, you got to spend on the cards. Well, if you do this right, you're going to be spending and paying your utility bills. You're going to be paying for your groceries. You're going to be paying for your car insurance, things you're paying anyway. As long as you pay those off right away or by the end of the month, you never pay a dime of interest, not one penny of interest. I have never paid interest since I've gotten into this game. And you'll easily be getting 10 to 30% return for every dollar you spend if you're doing it the right way. 10 to 30% adds up really, really quick. And if you learn to maximize these points, you can do exactly what we've done. I, I'm sure you'll you'll learn real quick. I'm not the smartest guy out there. If I can do it, anybody can. So if you're doing it right, you can go anywhere. You can do anything. Like it's, like you said, 64 countries later, and my wife and I have been doing it for nine years, and we're not stopping. Which is super, super impressive. And I also have to credit credit cards for fueling my ability to travel because it really like bridges the gap. You know, why spend the money, like your actual hard earned money when you can be spending the rewards that you're getting from credit cards? I find that they're super useful and it's really a lot about the sign up bonuses. Absolutely. So when I was talking about that 10 to 30%, um, that was referencing your sign-up bonuses. So if you're doing this right, in my opinion, um, you know, if assuming you're not somebody that's out there spending 500000 to a million dollars a year on a credit card, that's a different situation. That's not me. I'm a typical person. You know, I've never made a ton of money, but, you know, I'm right in the middle, right? So 
if you're doing it right, you're always working on a minimum spend. And when you're working on that minimum spend, it means you're getting that sign-up bonus. So you're getting 50,000 points, 60,000 points, 100,000 points, which are typically, if you're doing it right, enough for a round-trip flight to Europe or Asia or South America. If your readers trust you, and it sounds like they do, I read your blog and how awesome you are, everybody's going to understand how amazing this can be. Awesome. Thank you. That was so nice. (laughs) Absolutely. I went through it. I was like, you know what? She's my type of person. I was reading through it. I had my wife reading over my shoulder and she's like, you guys are going to click. I knew it. Oh, that is awesome. That's so, so, so great. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about two things to look out for when you're getting a credit card. Number one, it is like meeting, meeting the minimum spend. And the minimum spend really ranges depending on the credit card. It can be as minimum as low as like $500 or or as high as like $5,000. So it really depends. And I also wanted to say that a lot of credit cards also, you you have a period of like three months. So you have three months to meet that minimum spent. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I've been ambitious sometimes and I've gotten a new credit card. Like I'm going to spend this amount of money in three months and I didn't meet it. So I like to walk away from a ton of uh, free money. So I think it's super important for everyone just to be mindful of like, can you actually meet it? Because remember, this is going to hit your credit score. It's a small hit, but can you meet, can you meet the minimum spend? And I think that really helps in terms of like you being able to actually get the reward that you're working hard for. So number two, I also wanted to talk about a lot of cards have an annual fee. Now, personally, I think you have to make the case for it. Like, what is the value that you're actually going to be getting from this card that is worth the annual fee? So, for example, for me, I have the Platinum Delta Sky Miles uh, credit card. And that has an annual fee of $195. And I know people are going to be like, oh, well, that's like super steep, which I get. But we have the ability to redeem a companion pass, which means that I can fly anywhere in the 48 contiguous states and have a companion flight with me free. So if the flight is above $195, I'm, I'm, I made my money back, you know? So I definitely think it's important to look at the value and to see, you know, is it worth it? I know like I know Chase also has like some cards that have like 400, 450, which I don't have. But I know that a lot of people find value in that as well. Yep. So that is absolutely a good point. You know, the barrier to entry is huge. And for me, I started, you know, I was a college kid. I was 19 years old. I didn't know a whole lot about this. Um, I saw like a $100 sign-up bonus and I was like, oh my gosh, $100, that's top ramen for a month, right? Like that's how I started getting into this. Um, and things, the whole the whole hobby has progressed, um, you know, tenfold over the years. And uh, I've gotten to the point where I do have that Chase card that you mentioned. That's the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Um, it is probably my favorite card out there. $450 fee. I also have an Amex Platinum card, $550 fee. Um, I have a couple other cards that are two, three, four hundred dollars mixed in as well. I am probably the most frugal person you will ever meet. I don't buy new clothes. I don't go out to eat. Um, I coupon. I'm a super couponer. Um, you know, my wife cuts my hair. Like we're as extreme as we uh, as they get because we're in the process of trying to get to fire. So that said, for somebody like me to be willing to pay these fees. You have to stop, step back and say, wait a minute. Yeah, it's $450, $550, but what value am I getting? Um, I'll focus just on one right now. I'll talk about the Chase Sapphire Reserve because it's probably my favorite. $450 annual fee, a lot of money. Right off the top, you get a $300 travel credit. So $300. So if you buy a flight, hotel, 
rental car. It's so flexible. If you go through a toll or you pay a parking fee, um, those come off. It comes off automatically. You get $300 back right away. So it turns into a $150 fee. So find $150 value. Well, this card gets you, when you first open it, you can apply for global entry, which allows you to skip the lines, the TSA lines, allows you to skip to the front of the line and allows you to be pre-checked. That costs $100 normally. They reimburse that. So now you're down to a $50 fee. Among a hundred other things, it gets you accidental collision damage waiver when you buy a rental car. So when you go to a rental car agency, they always try to upsell you the $29.99 a day insurance. Well, guess what? This card covers it. Something happens, you put it on your card, they reimburse you. One step further, they also give you lounge access. So my favorite thing, I'm from Portland, Oregon. We have the best lounges in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, for Priority Pass. Priority Pass comes with a card. Essentially what it does, it lets you go in and out of lounges. Here, they also have restaurants. So we get to go into the restaurant every time we go, and they give you $28 per person for free and food. So my wife and I get $56 worth of food at a restaurant every time we fly. One step further, there's two restaurants in Portland. So we get $112 worth of stuff every single time we fly. So that $50 fee gets us $112 worth of food. And we get all these other amazing perks like trip protection, car insurance protection, so on and so forth. So if you're a traveler and you're utilizing these cards right, you're absolutely 100% going to make it back. We did the math last year just off of our Chase cards. We got almost $15,000 in value. Wow, that is amazing. Brendan, you just killed it. You just killed the explanation of the reserve. So I actually have never considered it because I thought the price was too steep. But you know what? I am going to look into this and and see what kind of value that I can get from from that. So thank you for sharing that. If that's too much to start, there's another card called the Sapphire Preferred. It's only $95 a year and you get almost all those same perks. So the barrier to entry is small. Um, so, you know, don't let those, sh- you know, shy make you shy away from this because there's so much value for everybody to be had. Exactly. And, you know, the Sapphire, the Chase Sapphire is actually my favorite card. And well, amongst my favorite cards, because I have I have many, um, but I can definitely recommend the Sapphire card. And I might be interesting how I use it, but, you know, after you get the sign up bonus, it's kind of like maintaining and you're kind of growing steadily. So what I do is any flight that I have that's under $150, I usually allocate it to that card. So that's like my mini travel hack. So anything above $250, so I always have a little bit of money in there. So you just find different ways to use your points and miles, which I think is really cool. And you know what? I love that. And I want to talk about that quickly. You've got your program. I've got my program. Something that drives me crazy about this hobby is you read these sensationalized headlines where couple saves $35,000 with one credit card on this flight for a honeymoon. And that's great. You know, there's a lot of people that run this program and they only want to focus on first class and they only want to focus on luxury. Well, guess what? There's a lot of us everyday people that we would never do that. We're okay with an economy flight. We're okay with staying at like a Hilton Garden Inn, you know, something clean, something comfortable. So don't let any of these big bloggers and any of these people shame you into doing it their way and forcing it on you. You do what's best for you and your family. Exactly. And honestly, my financially savvy way of doing things is like the less money that I can spend and the less points and miles that I can spend means the more I can travel. So I'm, trying to, I'm trying to stretch those bad boys is like as much as possible. (laughs) Exactly. You and I are the same. We see eye to eye. I love it. 
Excellent. So what are your like some of your favorite credit cards out right now, if you have any? Sure. So I, you know, I mentioned the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Um, I love it. That's one of the cards I hold on to forever. Um, I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. Um, there's a thing called the Chase Trifecta. And the reason Chase is so important when you first start out is there are a couple of rules surrounding this game that we could get into. But essentially, um, there's one rule that's really important called 524. And it just means you should sign up for Chase cards first. You get the Chase Trifecta, which is the Chase Inc. Chase Inc. is a business card, but um, it's very, very easy to get a business card, even if you don't have an established business. The Chase Freedom or the Freedom Unlimited, which is a great daily spend card. And the Chase Sapphire Reserve or the Chase Sapphire Preferred. These three together um, are an absolute powerhouse. It's a great way to start. I also really, really love, there's so many Amex products I love. Amex is American Express. Uh, the plat, The regular Platinum. Um, their gold card. I love the Delta card that you have because of the companion pass. Absolutely brilliant. Um, the Barclay Aviator card that I mentioned earlier because it gives you such a low barrier of entry into the game. And there's a new card coming out that's really starting to make some waves. There's actually two of them that are making some really nice waves in the in the industry. Um, one is the U.S. Bank. It's also called the Reserve Altitude Reserve card. Um, really, really a lot of nice benefits. It compares really well to Chase Sapphire Reserve. And the other one is the Wells Fargo Propel card. Um, it's a really easy card to use. Its earning categories are amazing. Um, I They haven't gotten the love, Wells Fargo, in the past couple of years, and they're really making an effort to make make their way back into the hobby. So really excited. Anytime there's competition, it's good for the rest of us. So those are all coming out strong. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about the Wells Fargo Propel card. I also wanted to say that sometimes like if you're considering a credit card to kind of maybe wait and look to see what the reward or bonus point range is, because sometimes they have like extra bonus points. So you could actually earn more depending on the time of year that you sign up for the card. So if you're on the fence, you know, take a take a take some notes on like how much points are offered now and come back to it later and see if they are offer more or less. So I would definitely add that into your strategy as well. That's where having, you know, access to a community is so important. You know, I am part of, you know, my company is financebuzz.com, but we run an amazing Facebook group called FBZ Elite Travel and Points. There's about 9,000 members in there, super friendly. We're in there every day and we're talking about it. You know what I mean? Hey, I just saw this sign up bonus. Oh, I just did this with my points and we're here to help each other. All we do is talk about this stuff all day, every day. You know, 9,000 people are in there helping each other. So if something comes out, I can tell you 10 times a day, somebody says, hey, I just saw this bonus. Is this the best bonus out there? That's what we do. Exactly. I'm going to link to all of the resources that we talked about in the show notes. So you'll have all that information, guys. All right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because 64 countries is a huge, 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 huge deal. So how are you managing visiting all these places? Tell us your backstory. So like I mentioned, I got out of college. Um, the economy kind of went bonk. My wife and I moved overseas. We started teaching English. You know, we come from the most humble beginnings there are, you know, like at one point in my life, I was in foster care. I lived in a car with my mom. Um, like, you know, I've been in some pretty extreme poverty in my life. So we definitely aren't these kids that had, you know, parents and family members and everything help us out. Uh, we did it all on our own. And uh, when we moved to Thailand, we had like $3,500 between the two of us. And we thought we were rich. We had been saving. We thought we were in really good shape. And we quickly realized 
we weren't. Um, we were over there. My wife's identity got stolen. Her credit card got swiped. And we ended up with $200. And we had to learn real quick how to live on $200 for a month. And uh, what that did is it kind of lit this entrepreneurial um, fire underneath us. And we said, you know what? What are we going to do? Well, we're gonna te- we were teaching English at the time. And uh, we said, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to hustle, we're going to find some more of our students, teach on the side, and run our own business so we can have some more money. And we quickly realized we were pretty good at it, you know. Um, I'm not the uh, best looking or the most charismatic individual in the world, but my wife is. Uh, so she was our salesperson. I kind of ran the back end, did the business, and, uh, you know, we turned it into a business. So we stayed overseas. We lived in Thailand, we lived in China, we lived in India, and we taught English. Um, we were in China on a train uh, because we were on a um, vacation in India. We ran into this couple that said, hey, moved to Australia, the money's crazy. Two months later, we're on a a flight to Australia. We went there, we started working, the money was great. Um, We went with our frugal ways and uh, we ended up saving over $100,000 in a year working in Australia. We went on the working holiday visa, worked, she was a nanny, I worked in a restaurant, saved a ton of money. Took that $100,000, came home, and uh, realized, well, Washington State uh, was in the process of legalizing cannabis. So we said, you know what? Um, We see a lot of opportunity in this. We had done all this research, and we went into Washington State's legal cannabis industry. Uh, We were the third people in the state to be licensed for a producer processor license, and uh, we ran our money into that and started um, started that pretty much day one that the, the state went and legalized it. We've gotten to the point, we're so lucky that we've had other employees run it. So I've been able to have a side job and so has my wife. So we've taken all of our money. We've invested in some real estate. We've invested in some stocks and bonds. Um, and we're kind of to the point where we can go live on the road and we make enough money from the business, our rentals and our other investments that we can work from wherever in the world. And we've got to live this amazing nomadic lifestyle that's allowed us to go to 64 countries. So you kind of got me at $100,000 when you how much you guys saved. So can you walk us through like what life was like in in Australia and how you guys were able to make so much money? Sure. So we do things like I said, we are extremely frugal. So we rented a room inside of a house. We did not go and rent a house. So we were living in a room in a less than desirable house, but it was fine for us. We had a bed, it was clean, and we had hot water and Wi-Fi. That's really all we cared about. We didn't go out to drink. We, or we didn't go out to eat. We didn't go out and drink. We didn't do any of these things that a lot of people do because we had a goal in mind. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. We were going to get debt free. We were going to pay everything off. We were going to save a bunch of money. And at the time, we were going to go home and buy a house. Um, so we were working our rumps off. I was working about 60 hours a week. She was working about 70 hours a week. The minimum wage in my job in Australia, because I was in food service, is $22 an hour. You can work behind the counter at McDonald's and make $22 an hour. I had a manager job, so I was making $29 an hour. And on Sundays, they paid double time. So I was literally making $58 an hour for 10 hours a day, $580 days for you know somebody that didn't have a ton of experience. It was a really big deal to us. And then my wife had her job. She was making you know about the same amount of money. So you know we were having three, four, five thousand dollars weeks that we were putting money away. And uh, like I said, we were there just over a year, living super frugal. $600 a month is what we were paying for our rent. And then because I worked at a restaurant. That pay, they paid for all of our food. I brought food home from the restaurant. 
Yeah, I really love your story because, you know, you and your wife came together and you had a goal for the future and you just kind of spent the year working hard, working towards your goal. And it paid off because you were able to come back to the States and you had a great amount of cash to invest and and start a, a new life. So I love that. I find that your story is so, so inspiring. Thank you. Um, It wasn't always easy. You know what I mean? It's really hard sometimes when you're watching your friends get new clothes and new cars and going out and having a good time. But um, I'm at the point now where those people are working every day. They're going their nine to five and being upset with their life. And I'm getting to talk to awesome people like you. So I think at the end of the day, I made a good decision. Excellent. Excellent. I love that. So if someone is interested in actually pursuing like side hustles, like Teach English, you know, online. What are some of the ways that or some examples that you can actually do side hustles easily nowadays? And it's funny that you mentioned that because even today where we are to the point where we're financially independent for the most part, we still do side hustles because we love it. Um, I do a couple different things. And um, if let's talk about teaching English specifically, because, you know, that's what we talked about. Right now, they've made it so much easier today than it was nine years ago. You can literally jump online, Google Teach English Online, and things will pop up. There's apps, there's companies, there's ways to do it. Um, One of the ones that I've done and I have friends that have done is VIP Kid. Um, There are multiple competitors out there as well, but VIP Kid's easy. Um, There's a little bit of a process, but as long as you are a native English speaker, you can get a job with them. Um, Pay ranges from about $18 to $22 an hour. You jump on Skype, you have a conversation with a most, most of the students are in China. You do not need to speak Chinese. Um, I do speak a little bit of Mandarin, luckily, because we live there. But a lot of times they prefer that you don't. That way it's complete immersion. So that's a really easy one. Um, if that's not your thing, let's say you don't want to jump on your computer. Let's say that that's not your thing. Everybody's got a cell phone today, right? Almost everybody's got a smartphone. There are so many apps. There's survey sites. There's um, there's Craigslist and OfferUp and LetGo are my absolute favorites. Why? Because people sell stuff when they either they're moving and they just want to get rid of stuff for super cheap or they're just giving it away because they're downsizing. I have been able to utilize this so much. I'll get free stuff or really cheap stuff off Craigslist or I find estate sales or garage sales. I go buy it, clean it up a little bit, turn around and resell it either on the same app that I bought it on or on eBay. And I've, you know, $500 to $1,000 a month is really easy. My biggest piece of advice, so if you're going to do this, is start small, stick to a $25 to $75 sale point because any less than that people think is junk. Any more than that, you're going to limit your audience and specialize in a niche. Don't try to be the computer person and the clothing person and the, you know, the kitchenware person. Find something that you're good at. Start there. Establish yourself. Start making some money. Anybody can do it. It takes a little effort, and with all the resources that there are on the internet today, everybody should be able to go on and make a little bit of money. I love, love that flipping. And also, I actually didn't know about the niching down or the price points. So that is like gold. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Knowing that you've lived in Thailand, in China, and also Australia, what are some of the things that digital nomads should look for when they're picking a new destination to live for a while? Excellent question. One I nobody ever asked me. I love it. So something for me, there's a couple things. Um, 
I think it's probably the number one most important thing is look at the visa. So when you go to a country, typically you have to get a visa. Can you work there? Can you not work there? Can you run a business online? Can you not? So you, I would start there. There's a lot of really good countries. Again, we got lucky with Thailand because they allow you to come in for 90 days um, and they got pretty pretty flexible rules. Um, China, we had to get a working working holiday or actual working visa. Australia allows you a working holiday visa. So if you if you focus on that to start, that's the absolute best best thing to do. Find somewhere that you want to go that's cheap um, or cheap by your standard. You know, if you're living in New York, you move to where I am in Portland. That's cheap. But if I'm in Portland, I moved to New York. It's not the same way. So it's all relative. But find somewhere cheap. Find somewhere that has a really good, easy visa process for you. Um, and then beyond that, I would start looking at what they offer. So I had absolutely no idea, but we just got back from Lithuania, um, Estonia, and they have got the most flexible visa process, the cheapest standard of living, and the fastest internet in the world. If you are a digital nomad and you're looking for somewhere to go work or at least try, that is, in my opinion, the number one place in the world right now to go to. Quick internet, cheap food, easy visa process, and they want you to be there. Guys, Brandon is dropping some gems here. I I love it. This is exactly what we need and what we're looking for. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about real estate because I also think that you have a really interesting real estate story. So tell us about when you moved back to the United States, what did you do and how did you get into real estate? So my real estate uh, path is was kind of, um, I kind of fell into it, if I'm honest. Um, my wife and I, like I said, we moved back and we pretty much put all of our money that we had into the cannabis thing. Um, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. So we started renting as soon as we got back. And uh, the frugal side of me was just, it was just eating away at me saying, you cannot be paying somebody else's mortgage. You're smarter than this. So a couple months into it, um, we started saving up money um, and uh, we borrowed a little bit of money from friends and family. And we found the absolute cheapest thing we could find on the market at the time. Luckily, uh, prices were much lower than they are today. And we found a condo for $60,000. Two bedroom, two bath. It wasn't nice. It was in a much less than desirable area. Um, You know, the type of place where you're at times walking over needles to get into your doorway, that type of place. But it was home. Okay. That's all we needed. We needed a place to put a place to put our head down. Um, We quickly realized a year into it that our area was in the middle of absolutely blowing up. All the prices were going through the roof. Rent was going crazy. And uh, we said, you know what? We're starting to make a little bit of money from the business. Our side hustles are going well. Um, Let's move out and rent this place. And uh, we realized, hey, guess what? Because we're in cannabis, we can't get a loan. Um, Didn't matter how good our credit was. Didn't matter how much money we were making. So we... uh, kind of ran into a brick wall. And I think a lot of people at that point would have thrown their hands up and said, you know what, I got my place, I own it outright, so be it. Um, That's not our style. So what we did is we moved somebody in. We moved my brother-in-law in and uh, did what's commonly referred to as a house hack. And house hacking means you move somebody into your house, they pay you and more or less cover your rent. So he moved in, um, we gave him a great deal for the area. And because we owned our house, we were cash flowing right away. So boom, we were bringing another $700 a month for letting a brother-in-law live with us. And that was a deal. You know, there are a lot of people that are renting rooms out for about a thousand bucks a month. So he was happy. We were happy. Um, and it was going well. 
Um, after that, we were there. We did that for about another year. And, uh, you know, again, it was eating away. I mean, now that I know about house, house hacking and now that I know I can do this, like, what can I do next? And uh, I had a buddy. He was in the middle of going through a divorce and he's like, I got to sell my place off. And I said, hey, instead of selling it, why don't you uh, let me buy it from you? And uh, we worked something out because he was kind of in a, I couldn't get a loan, like I mentioned, but I did have a large down payment. And he was in uh, kind of a tight spot because he was rolling his investments, which is a 1031 exchange. He was doing a 1031 exchange into another property um, based off of what was going on with his marriage. And he said, you know what, this will work perfect. Let's do it. So I bought my second place from him, got it paid off in a year um, or year and a half and uh, owned that place. And um, from there, we had more money. We started leveraging it because... Um, things were going really well. We got a third place and we're now to the point where in our third place is completely paid off. Uh, the other two places cash flow really well for us. This place, as soon as I move out of it, will cash flow as well. And uh, we'll move into another place. My plan is to go and buy a multifamily property and I'm going to geohack. And geohack just means moving into a less expensive area and uh, strictly for the cost of living because I work remotely and I get to travel the world. doesn't really matter where I live. I can work from wherever I am. So we're going to do that, get a multifamily house, hopefully house hack that, uh, get three or four more doors um, on the next property acquisition. We've made a couple offers that have been rejected recently, uh, but that hasn't deterred us. We'll do a couple more of those. And our plan is to have, you know, 15 to 20 doors that are cash flowing a few hundred dollars a month for us. And uh, we'll just be sitting back collecting checks. Are you like banned from mortgages? Like, how, can you explain that dynamic? Sure. So, uh, and, you know, we can talk about this all day, um, but I want to be clear. I am in the process of actually selling my license um, because it has absolutely turned into a terrible investment at this point. The Washington state market has over become overregulated has become flooded with growers and the way they did the licensing process here has made it so you can't really make any money um, it went from when we originally started we were getting about six thousand dollars a pound for cannabis and uh, that was really good money you know um, they do have some of the most stringent tracking and compliance rules you've ever seen it is more regulated than uranium uh, but it was fine we were making tons of money and uh, we were employing good people and everything was fantastic well, because the markets got so competitive and they're not ever issuing any more licenses, uh, the people that own the storefronts have gotten to the point where they control the market and prices have dumped. And we're about $500 a pound now um, with overhead close to $14,000 a month. It's really hard to make a profit. So we are in the process of exiting and planning to get completely out of it. And that will allow us to really fuel our real estate investments. And the reason we're now going to be able to fill our real estate investments is because we're out of cannabis, because like you mentioned, yes, um, the second a bank or an institution hears that you are in cannabis, they will not lend to you. There are a few exceptions here in Washington state because it's a state regulated law, but anything that is FDIC or NCUA, which is credit union, um, federally insured because it's a federally illegal drug still, they do not allow you to use their money. So um, unfortunately, we've had to use local banks and a lot of them will not lend, um, even if you have good credit, just because they know you're in cannabis, even though they allow you to bank with them. Or if I want to get a, you know, let's say I want to go buy a property in Baltimore, which is one of the places I'm looking at right now, because it's across federal lines, they don't allow it. Where it's so contradictory and it doesn't make a ton of sense to me is I pay my taxes every month. I'm a business owner, okay? Like, 
cannabis or not, like, you know, I do everything a normal business owner does probably and then some because of all the rules. I pay my taxes. I have a payroll. I have a CPA. I have an attorney. I go through everything. I dot my I's, cross my T's. I do it right. They take my money. And when I pay my taxes and they put it into the bank, but me, if I do it, I can be in trouble because of the federal law. So it's unfortunately made it really difficult. That's that's very, very interesting. And I'm interested to hear your journey um, from there and into more into real estate. Yep, that's the plan. I'm excited. <laughs> now let's kind of shift into investing. And the reason why I want to talk about investing a little bit is because it is also in line with passive income, because your dividends and the returns that you get from investing is passive. So what are you investing in these days, if you can share? Absolutely. So, you know, outside of what we just talked about, one of the first things I tried when I got back and I had a little bit of money is like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to learn the stock market. I'm going to be a day trader and I'm going to be rich. All these people are doing it. And I can do it. Well, let me tell you something. I got my rear end handed to me. I did not do a very good job. Um, I thought I'd done the research. You know, I got a business degree. I'll be fine. Um, unless you really, really have some inside information or you really have a good understanding of it, um, I heavily, heavily suggest that you let somebody else do it for you. I'm a big, big, big believer that smart people surround themselves with smarter people. And I'm, I, I feel good when I'm not the smartest person in the room. And uh, because of that, um, I brought somebody else in and I've invested in Vanguard. Um, I've got Vanguard there. They, my, my 401k is there. My Roth is there. Um, my ETS, my mutual funds, I've got everything with them because they got super low fees. They diversify well. Their numbers make sense. Um, if you look at them, they've beat the market for, you know, gosh knows how long. And they make it easy. You know what I mean? I put my money in there. They do a good job. And I kind of just sit back and collect. With my dividends, you mentioned that. I reinvest everything. So I just have them reinvest everything for me. I look at my statement on a monthly basis to make sure that my money is still there or doing better. And I sit back. It's not my strongest area. And I'm aware that I'm I am 100% happy to admit my limitations. And that's not where I'm good. They are. Bring it on. With Vanguard, what I realize is like a lot of the index funds, you need to have, let's say, 3000 or plus dollars to start investing. And just in case, if you don't have enough money to invest in like you know, the ones a lot of the bloggers and, and a lot of the fintech people suggest, you can invest in ETFs. And that is kind of like you buy it like a stock. Like if it's $150, you just invest $150 and you get one share. And that's an easy way for you to start getting your, your feet wet a little bit. And also like if you, another thing to think about, like let's say if you have a side hustle in addition to your full-time job, what you can do is you can take a portion or maybe all of your side hustle income and use that to fuel your investments. And that's like how, you know, compounding, compounding interest and making your money grow and work for you. So that's something that I also recommend. Like, you know, if if you walk your dog or if you babysit on the side or do something, you could always use that money to invest. Yep, I completely agree. All right. So I'm going to ask you the last question. If you can go back in time, what would you have done differently in your 20s? Obviously, outside of knowing that I should have bought Bitcoin and sold Bitcoin on Google and Amazon and some of these big companies uh, and got 
stupid wealthy for almost no effort. The one thing I would have done is bought property or property earlier. Um, like I said, I made some serious mistakes. I got a surprise inheritance when I was uh, really young and I blew through the money because I was fiscally irresponsible and I had absolutely no idea what to do just because you know, I didn't have that upbringing. I didn't know what to do. I had more money than I'd ever done in my life. I'd ever had in my life. So I blew through it. If I would have been smart. I would have invested in property. I would have started investing in the real estate market and the stock market as soon as possible. Do not wait. Get involved now. Time in the market is more important than timing the market. Get involved now. Excellent. Brandon, you dropped some serious gems on us, and it was seriously a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me. Seriously, like I love connecting with other like-minded, awesome people, and I'm so excited to meet you in person. So before I let you go, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and connect with you? Probably the best way to find me is through my Facebook, Brandon Neth, or our Facebook group, FBZ Elite Travel and Points. Um, I'm there. I probably spend 10 hours a day in there connecting with people. Um, I'd love to every one of your listeners to come in and be my best friend. We have meetups where we get together. We talk. We eat food. We talk about finance. We talk about travel. So um, those are probably the best ways to get in touch with me. 